This podcast is brought to you by Scratchpad. The thing I would bear hug a sales leader with and also tell them very directly and candidly is it's not about the tool. Like it's not about the tool you are using to do the forecasting. It's about the like forecasting should if if your if your team is actually doing and if you've put in place the right compass for them to use to actually understand like the health of an, a specific atomic deal then forecasting is really easy. It's literally a sixth grade, it's sixth grade math. I'll be honest, I still don't fully believe you, but hey, we'll take your word for it. That's some royalty-free shit, people. That's what we do. But let's wind it all the way back to high school days. Oh, those wonderful high school days. Oh, yeah. So, so, so tell us more. Just walk us through your journey. I've, I've had a very interesting trajectory that's kind of at face value, like, well, what's the common thread here, right? I've gone from, you know, back in the high school days, I ran a landscaping business. And that was sort of just what I fell into. The reason why was that my family had just moved back from Europe. I found myself in a small little suburban town where uh, people had all grown up together. And uh, for me, it was a it was a easier, more motivating task to go knock on neighborhood doors and eventually just build this thing that ended up taking off. And that being said, you know, I'd say general arc of my career has been all about wherever I can find interesting learnings and be challenged and do it with an interesting group of characters. That's been the common theme and thread. Eventually that sort of led me to the Bay Area. I wanted to follow this entrepreneurial instinct. I was I, I was an accounting student halfway through college somehow, even though I came to the Bay to do something in the entrepreneurial world, I ended up pivoting into sort of a startup that my friends were tinkering on in college. I I uh, we ended up kind of having some really gr- a really great run, and I ended up sort of running the sales team right out of college. And from there, I ended up jumping around to a bunch of different high growth companies in the Bay Area in the the heyday of sort of pre COVID times. And then I found myself sort of as a very first enablement person at Segment when the company was getting towards 100 million of revenue and had totally under invested in a lot of that stuff. And here I am, the, the first enablement person ever when I've only done sales directly or managed sales teams before. I ended up then meandering around a couple other early stage sort of series A, series B startups, oftentimes as like a first rep or sometimes like a player coach. Um, and then, you know, Segment, I had a had a really good friend of mine from college who was working there when Segment was going through explosive growth. And I always made a point of staying close to him. And there was a certain point where I was like, hey, I really want to go. You know, I felt like I'd been in a bunch of scrappy early stage companies that didn't have it figured out. And I said, I want to go to a company that has it figured out. And you know, little did I know, it seemed like Segment had it figured out from the outside looking in. But sure enough, you jump into a company that's even further along and you realize every company, you know, I had a mentor tell me early in my career, every company looks like a shining star from the outside looking in. And every company is a dumpster fire from the inside looking out. Uh, and so, you know, that was sort of the big inflection point of going from earlier stage to later stage, turning out realizing there's still a whole ton of problems. They're just different problems. But there's no such thing as the perfect company that's got it figured out that is going to be stable and up and to the right as much as it might look that way from the outside. That's one of the hardest roles to take on, I think, is that first sales hire at a series, call it like early stage company called you know late seed, series A, early B. I think a lot of trauma has been created at that stage for folks. You're creating, you're oftentimes like you're having to do one part of building the thing that you don't know what you're actually realistically building the engine of. And you're also having to, in a lot of instances, just create something out of nothing, right? Like there are no customers. Selling in the first, when you're like sub $500,000 of revenue, right? And you're trying to like land those first deals, 
you don't have anything to lean on. There's no like, oh, well, when we sold that company's biggest competitor, we did this and we met with this person and that was our champion. It, it is the kind of fake it till you make it, right? And those in that window of time. And you're also, I think, one of the hardest things that's underlooked. When I talk to a lot of people in my network that are thinking about like taking a first AE role at a startup, the thing I always um, encourage them to think a lot about that they're not thinking about is they're thinking a lot about the market and the total addressable market and who would they go after. A lot of the times, I think the thing they forget about is that one of the biggest people you're selling is actually the founder and CEO that you're going to have to work for. And it's not just selling enough to get the job, but it's you're going to have to continue to convince them and have a point of view on what good go-to-market looks like. That first rep, even if you have experience, they're going to want to scrutinize and understand everything that you want to do. How many, we'll say back to Puyan's example, like late stage or late seed, early A, actually have product market fit. Obviously, like everyone in the company thinks they have product market fit. And if you take the role, you think they probably have product market fit. But there's just to me, there's so many forces that can make that relationship go wrong, whether it's like the founder who just actually still wants to handle sales entirely and like needs to scrutinize every deal or the AE is just ineffective and maybe there is product market fit or maybe there's no product market fit at all. Like what, what do you guys kind of think the percentage of companies that actually a product market fit at that stage are. You know, they are, of course, in order to recruit you, right, and pitch you, because that's what they're doing to get you to join as a candidate. They're going to they're gonna paint a beautiful, vivid picture of how great of a market they're going after and how much product market fit they have. You also know once you get in there, chances are everyone's going to generally believe that because it's it's tough when you're in one of those environments. You have to, you have to, you have to believe it. Otherwise, why would you yes. keep waking up, banging your head into the wall every day trying to, trying to do that? But to your point, right? Like probably realistically, I don't know, 10% of them maybe uh, super optimistically have product market fit. So realistically, it's like you have to make that assessment outside looking in and also know that in my experience, when you look at like a segment, you look at any of these companies that uh, Airbnb, any of these great stories of great companies being built, they oftentimes pivot their way into that, right? So you also have to be assessing like, realistically, I as the rep, might not actually be able to truly know if there's product market fit. It's also knowing like, is this the team that, and do they have enough of an opportunity in this market that they can find their way out along the way? And am I up to be part of that process? Because that's sometimes not selling. That's actually kind of like being a product, like a more of a solutions engineer than it is an AE, right? It's, it's sometimes actually helping them navigate that. Matt, I think you just nailed it because you have to, at least where I've seen some folks struggle is they'll they'll join at that stage, but they can't make the shift enough in how they think and how they work to that type of environment because you have to play a role in helping the company strengthen product market fit. And usually that looks like bringing learnings back to the team, sharing the things that don't work. And I don't think that happens that often, at least from folks I've talked to in, in most established sales teams. And from a salty sales dog perspective, you you don't get paid commission on learning. That's the hard thing about it. I was just going to say it's two things, right? It's one, you have to re- to, point, to your point, you have to re-engineer what you look at as your role as an AE of not just slinging deals, but actually bringing learnings back into the company. The other part, though, that I think you're, you're hitting on, Ross, right now, right, is the you have to... Um, the company also has to recognize and be willing to not look at you as an AE, right? In other words, they can't look at you as, oh, we just hired this person to slaying deals. They have to look at half the equation of like, we hired this person to tell us the hard things that we don't want to hear because they're really articulate. They understand their customers and they can package these things up in a way that's believable. But 
you also have to have a CEO that is willing to understand like, hey, this salesperson is worth their salt more than just the amount of revenue that they've closed. And I think there's a broader question there, maybe even systematically, right? Which is, should these people even get like comped based on expectation of, you know, certainly yeah, they're going to have a lower quota if you're the first rep, but sh- should there be some recognition for how, uh, how they're compensated based on their ability to help navigate the company towards that product market fit and the learnings, right? Because that's not part of the structure. And I think for that reason, it's why oftentimes, yeah, the salty sales dog perspective, I think is fair, right? To be like, hey, well, I'm not paid to bring learnings. I'm paid to bring deals. I obviously know about Segment. I obviously know a lot about Twilio, but I'm kind of curious, like from the company perspective, like what were those actual headwinds they were running into? Was this COVID related? Um, And can you walk through that, like through the acquisition? Was the acquisition considered a failure? Not, Not like the literal acquisition, but to not IPO, right? Like for obviously an acquisition for some people is a huge win, but for most people that aren't, you know, that are after series B, it's not really much of a win. Like, I'm just curious from like the objective, like perspective of someone who was on the inside, like what was happening? What did that look like? I know it was a good, uh, probably a good thing for you at some point to get, a go, say you went through an acquisition like Twilio. So I, I kind of heard two different questions in there. One was like yeah. a little bit about like, cause when keep in mind, when I joined segment, this was 2019 and the headwinds that I was talking about that were starting to happen there were this was still a uh, you know 18 plus a month prior to us getting acquired so there was some stuff happening there that's just and I can talk about that in terms of just stuff growth stage companies go through there was also then you know the, I think your other question which is like just walk through the whole getting acquired by Twilio that process how we looked at it, it what that experience was like so I can talk to both of them um if if that sounds good but I'd say in terms of the first piece of things when I like I said that segment to me looked like uh, from the outside looking in, like a company that had a storybook trajectory, you know, it had gone through some. There's the famous story that the founders have had told, and that's out there. Segment having to pivot three times before it got into sort of the customer data infrastructure or customer data platform space that it was in. But once it hit that, right, Segment had had this incredible five years of basically going from nothing in revenue to like you know north of fifty million in a short window. Right, the, st- the stuff that I think was starting to happen was just what happens with any company that goes through that spurt of growth with um, where you have the market pulling you uh, further along, right? But where there needs to be almost a reset point or along the way, right? Decisions are made really quickly and eventually it catches up to you where it's like, oh my God, we're not, uh, you know, are we selling the right products to the right people? Are we selling these things in the right way? And that's what it was with Segment. In our case, it was a lot of it was, I think we were starting to need to sell not just to our core engineering buyer, but to product and marketing as well, right? And that's a very different sales motion. It was something that the org was not used to. Um, and we were also moving away from sort of the product-led growth to actually more of like, we need to have an enterprise-led tops-down sales motion that we can layer into this. Because if we can have a, someone like a DoorDash come in when they're an early stage startup, but as they quickly mature and grow with us, we need to have an enterprise sales motion to make sure we're, we're doing the right things in the right way. And so I think it was a lot of that stuff. Fast forward to the acquisition by Twilio that happened, you know, uh, you know, we had uh, COVID ended up being a headwind for segment at the beginning, just like many companies. But once we re we had to rework a lot of our methodology, narrative positioning, but we, we it ended up becoming a huge accelerant for us because every company needed to become more data driven and be more thoughtful about how they were working with customers digitally. I think a lot of that is what led, of course, to the acquisition by Twilio. To answer your question, you know, 
I, I can't offer up the perspective of the entire the entire organization, right? But I can say that my perspective of when we got acquired, and I think the feeling of a lot of folks that had been in that intensive period for two or three years where we were really trying to not turn something around, but make sure it kept growing and, and was that we reinflected the growth, like segments growth was slowing and we were able to bring it back up. I think the feeling of all the people that were in that window of time was like, wow, we have, were doing some epic shit. And there's no reason why we couldn't be on course to an IPO or something right. like that. Right? And right. so I think in some ways, the feeling of, of some folks, myself included, was, wow, this is an incredible outcome. Uh, it's great, obviously. We're not complaining because this is still a huge win. But uh, it feels like we were just, it was just within right. reach. We were getting to north of 200 million of revenue. All, we were seeing people like Amplitude at the uh, 10 months after us get acquired going public, right? At crazy valuations. And so right. hindsight 2020, it's probably good that we did get acquired if you think about where our stock would be today. But Sure. Um, I think that it definitely felt like uh, we were so close. Uh, we could have gotten there on our own. And then, you know, I could I could talk about the acquisition all day long uh, and, and all the funds and joy, joy of that. Uh, I think uh, I'll, I'll hold off on going there unless that's a, unless that's a spot we want to go through. But I definitely lived and breathed that. This podcast is brought to you by Scratchpad. What if I told you you could reduce your sales cycle by 30% in 60 days? That's what happened when Crunchbase adopted Scratchpad. By driving process adoption, leaders and reps moved deals through the pipeline with speed. They trusted their CRM, and forecasts were easier to predict. Learn how your team can get radically efficient at scratchpad.com. You talked about the, um, the impact of COVID, right? At first being a headwind, then a tailwind. Recently, yeah. we've had another big shift for a lot of companies, the market downturn, tons of companies doing layoffs. And one thing I'm hearing is from, from a lot of sales leaders, we need to do more with what we have. We need to do more with the pipeline that we have, and we need to do more with the team that we have. Yeah. And a big part of that also comes to like, we just need to know how the heck to forecast because like so much has shifted. Yeah. You've seen it through a lot, Matt. So I'm curious, uh, why is forecasting so hard? Well, there's a, like, I, I, I don't want to steal a person's words uh, and I don't want to use them out of term, but Carl Eisenbach, who was sort of a, a general partner over at Sequoia and is now co-CEO over at Workday. Um, one of the, uh, my business partner that I partner on most of my consulting work with was at Sequoia last and uh, has oftentimes cited sort of the way Carl would talk about forecasting, right? And the fact that, one of the hardest things about forecasting, right, is we are making it out to be a math equation. I think with that being said, it's also something that is, it's like, uh, it is not, it can never be summed into a math equation, right? There is so much that is actually going on when you look at, like, if you look at a hundred million dollar forecast or whatever, and you go down into the deals, right? The, the, the deal is not a math equation, right? It doesn't work that way. It's a bunch of humans that need to align around a problem and that you need to, uh, that a lot of things need to happen in the right way to get them to get them to get that deal done, right? And so I think, long way of answering your question, one of the biggest challenges I think with forecasting, right, is how do you still how do you run it in a way where it is a math equation? It does need to roll up into a number, but also how do you do it in a way where you're not obscuring away all the complexity that actually does exist at the deal level? And what Carl Eisenbach would talk about is the fact that. The, pro the process of forecasting is really what matters more than the outcomes. And it's the fact that every week, right, we're looking at the deals and we're saying, what are the things that could go wrong for this to not work? What are the things that need to be true for this to work? 
and we're rinsing and repeating, right? So it's, it's more about, in my opinion, building the muscle behind doing that and looking at the fact that on a deal level, there's so much complexity that is going on and saying, how do we, this is why sales leaders talk about med pick, right? Cause it's, you know, it's critical to say, how do we like have some framework so we can actually understand all the nuances that are happening and how it's going to affect our ability to close this deal. Um, and so I think it's more, it's more about that. I think one of the challenges right now is that a lot of uh, orgs are realizing, right? Is we were thinking of it too much like a math, math equation in the good days because the deals just, the number was just happening, right? We were just achieving it. And now I think it's sort of like, oh my God, all of a sudden this stuff that we were forecasting, we thought was going to come through, it just didn't materialize. When they're realizing, wait a minute, we need to course correct and over rotate back on the tactics of the getting into the deals and understanding where does this really stand? What's going on? And we need to be pretty maniacal about it as well, right? We can't just like take someone's first answer as a, as the truth, right? We need to really get down here and inspect and also help like help the team that's working in the deal uncover the gap. So that way we're all on the same page. Cause I think if the CRO has a different definition of what qualified means or what commit means, than the person that's forecasting it, that's where really big issues can happen. So having a common language and I think having just a consistent process and making it this consistent improvement, right? More like more harnessing that, like Japanese word of Kaizen, right? Of like using consistent improvement. Um, I think I think it's looking at it more that way versus like the outcome itself. Yeah, well, I think, I think it's interesting because you've seen it through a few perspectives, right? You've been a seller. So you've been under that pressure of, hey, what are you going to close? What are you committing to? Like, what what does your pipe look like? Yeah. You've been a sales leader. You've seen it from an enablement standpoint and you've seen it from an advisory standpoint. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I guess I was just curious to hear, you know, look, there aren't many that have seen it through all of those different lenses, yeah. but it does seem to be something that just continues to be a problem for people. Yet there's like all of this stuff out there that's supposed to help with it, but most companies are still struggling with just understanding what's actually going on. The thing I would bear hug a sales leader with and also tell them very directly and candidly is it's not about the tool. Like it's not about the tool you are using to do the forecasting. It's about the like forecasting should, if, if, if your team is actually doing, and if you've put in place the right compass for them to use to actually understand like the health of an, a specific atomic deal, then forecasting is really easy. It's literally a sixth grade, it's sixth grade math. The, the biggest thing is the, how are we making sure that we as an organization from top to bottom have the same definition of what healthy or good looks like and then how do we actually have something that's prescriptive? Not like hand wavy of, oh, you need to go get a better champion. But like if a salesperson has someone they're working with that's a coach, how do they go get a champion? And how is that going to affect the forecast? Like how's that going to affect where the deal stands? And then the forecasting is really just, it's a, it's a, it's the simple math that you layer on top. So I think the problem is more so in opportunity management, I would almost say. And like, uh, making sure that the whole org has the same rubric that you're operating from for what does good look like. So that way everyone can be on the same page about the gaps. Cause there's just a lot more gaps now and there's a lot more things that need to be true to close a deal. And so we need to be more aware of where those gaps are not beating people up over having gaps, more just saying like, let's be in, you know, Joe at segment, our CRO used to talk about this phrase of like, we need to be intellectually honest. Right. And I think that's critical is we just have to be honest about where the gaps are 
And then the job of a good sales leader, right, is to not beat the rep up over having the gaps, but actually get in the boat with them and like help them row in the right direction, right? So if, if you can start with those two things, like consistent compass to have a clear view of like, what does good look like? Intellectual honesty of where the actual gaps are, because there's every deal has gaps, right? Uh, and then sales leadership that are actually going to get in the boat and not scream at the scoreboard and say, you know, go get more deals, but actually help the rep, like think about that and close the deal. Like those are the three legs of the stool that I would talk about. You work with a lot of sales teams, or at least you see a lot of companies in the sales teams. What are you seeing as a shift or a trend in office versus remote? I've worked with about, I've worked with about 10 separate go-to-market teams over the last 12 months or so, so, let's say, right. And, uh, you know, in a bunch of different parts of the country, bunch of different industries, the trend line that I see across all of them is if they are, uh, I have not yet worked with a, a single full, one that is sort of fully taking a fully remote stance and we're going to continue to stay fully remote. Almost all of them are trying to drive or actively build go-to-market culture in person, right? Uh, and I've seen that in a lot of different shapes and forms, but it seems to me to be Everyone, even if they're not yet necessarily in that state where they're in the office to some extent regularly, the CRO or the CEO or the sales leaders are trying to move more in that direction for all the reasons that you might expect to hear. So that's sort of, I'd say that's the one consistent trend line that I see. And then the way that bears itself out, there are some, you know, some companies I've worked with a company that's, you know, in uh, Arkansas of all places, which is not necessarily where you expect to typically find a tech company. And they're in office like four or five days a week. I've worked with others where it's much more so hybrid and they have regional hubs, but it's sort of, hey, we want people in two to three days a week. Um, and I've seen it also on the, you know, a lot of the teams I work with where there's some desire, even though people recognize they're giving up the convenience of work from home. I think almost everyone, at least that I'm interfacing with that are sort of more of the top performing folks on those sales teams, they also have some desire to be to have some kind of balance, but to have a balance towards also being in person and collaborating in person. So that's been my observation. Ross, are you seeing anything different or similar? I mean, it seems like at least I I can't speak to like that many companies. I mean, the big ones are all trying to go back. The Googles and Salesforces are already at three days at minimum. Uh, It's a little bit easier for them because they have all the hubs as, uh, uh, as was already stated, but I, it, all I hear is mostly complaining because there's been so many exceptions were made during COVID. Like so many people moved away. So many people are remote. And like, then the, uh, the people who didn't want to go back, like our local that are forced to go back to like, well, how come blank gets to do this? Like there's, it's a little bit, it's just like from a morale standpoint, it's pretty tough. Um, the transition, if that's where it's going, like has to start somewhere. And like, eventually we'll get back to you know, potentially being in the office, probably never five days, but at minimum three days is probably what I would guess. I mean, I think for me, I would not be able to, if, if I was remote, but had an option to go in the office and I could, I would probably go at least two days a week. Personally. I just, I think why? like, that's why. Yeah. Well, I need, I need other humans. I, I like sales in particular is extremely hard by yourself. And I also think just like by nature of being near people, like I, I stand by the whole, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And I think like, if you want to advance in your career and like that matters to you, you're probably going to try and be around the leadership team if they're there. Um, I've heard a lot of instances where leadership teams aren't showing up, but they're mandatory mand- mandating it. It's just a really bad look. 
because uh, they, you know, it's the classic do whatever, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And that's a little bit tough. And then you've got your middle kind of middle upper. I'm talking like VPs, directors who are like, we really don't want to go back, but we're too being told like we have to go back. So you guys are going back, but we're going to kind of like do our thing and exist in the shadows still. It's just, there's a lot of like nuance and exceptions and things have gotten so bent the opposite way. It's hard to see it going back fully at any point. Mm -hmm. But like that, that'd be my, my preference would be two days a week. If I could, I would. Awesome. Well, Matt, I know we're coming up on, on time here. Thanks so much for joining us. And there's a lot we didn't, I mean, we didn't even get to the user growth PLG stuff. We may have to do another session on that. Yeah. Um, Facts. And talk about that landscaping. Thanks. That's right. We talk about growing yeah. that biz. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it was, hopefully it was useful. I, I certainly enjoyed it. I, I can, uh, I could wax poetic on any number of these topics for, uh, for a while. So hopefully we got some good stuff there. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I hope it's useful for others. And obviously if you guys want to ever have me back at any point, I'm more than happy to riff on other, on other fronts. But, um, but yeah, hopefully we, we covered them. Hopefully we covered a meaningful swath and, um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I had a blast with it. Yeah. Anything, Matt, anything you want to plug at the end here? Yeah. Where can people find you? Yeah. Looking for any more advisory roles out there? The thing I would be interested in plugging is like the, the stuff I do with go to market operators fund is interesting, right? Obviously it's a small scale VC fund that we run. It's, we have about 40 or so LPs that are either folks from the segment mafia, if you would, and, or folks, a lot of go-to-market leaders that have experienced product-led growth businesses that need to then start to layer in that enterprise sales motion, right? And I think that in the world that we're living in these days, that's going to be something that Segment was one of the maybe early startups that had a huge product-led growth and had to make that transition. I think it's a path that many are going to have to go down. And I always enjoy and have interesting conversations with founders on that front. Oftentimes, you know, we write small checks and generally join alongside a tier one VC in certain rounds that basically bring a lot of that go-to-market expertise. But I enjoy having those conversations. That I think would be the thing that I'd want to plug is just if there are founders out there that are thinking about those uh, those things that want to be pointed in the right direction, have a thought partner um, or have a partner along in the journey. I think that um, obviously my door is always open there and um, happy to get in touch with folks and be helpful from that standpoint. But that would be the... And I'll, I'll vouch for Matt. It's been awesome working with him. Yeah. Well, there, there we yeah. go. I'm glad, glad to... Hey, glad study. To hear um, yeah. Short and sweet. Social proof. <laughs> Are you looking for ways to execute, manage, and measure your entire sales process? Scratchpad is your answer. The world's largest sales teams, including Autodesk, Algolia, Cisco, GoTo, Twilio, Segment, are already seeing better results. Learn more at scratchpad.com.